Hello, everyone, and welcome to our strawberry chat. My name is Miranda Purcell. I'm the Viticulture Extension Specialist with Purdue University, located on campus. Just a reminder that this event is held from 12 to 1 p.m., usually on the first Wednesday of every month. This month, we pushed it back one week, but we'll resume our normal schedule by meeting the first Wednesday of September. And we discuss relevant topics, um, and we will also address any pre-submitted questions. So if you have any questions that arise between now and our next session, feel free to email Wen Jing or myself, and we'll be sure to address those questions next month. Just so that everyone's aware, this webinar is being recorded, and the recording will be turned into a podcast that you can listen to on Spotify. And so if you're on the Strawberry Chat email list, you will receive an email once the podcast is available. And at this point, I would like to introduce my co-host, Wang Jing Guan. Thanks, Randa. Hi, this is Wang Jing. I'm the vegetable specialist located at Southwest Indiana in Vincennes. Um, and uh, today our topic is plastic culture strawberries. We are very fortunate to have three very experienced strawberry grower and researcher joining our discussion today. And uh, let's first have them introduce themselves. I'm Brad Burgerford. I uh, have been uh, an assistant professor and a horticulture specialist with Ohio State University for 32 years, but I uh, recently retired on May 31st and then began a, a new career with uh, Brandt Fertilizer out of Illinois as a technical agronomist on June the 1st. So I enjoyed my whopping 24 hours of retirement uh, on the road heading to uh, Illinois, but uh, have worked with plastic culture strawberries, uh, looking at them in high tunnels back from 95 to 99. And then uh, 2001, we started our field research on plastic culture strawberries uh, in Ohio, trying to mimic the North Carolina system, but adopted for the uh, winters we have in the Midwest. And uh, we continue to learn today, but we've learned a lot since, uh, since uh, 2000, 2001. And uh, I'm glad to be a part of this group today, and I'm hoping to learn some more as well. My name is Calvin Beasley, and I'm the owner of Beasley's Orchard in Danville, Indiana. Uh, we primarily grow apples, sweet corn, and pumpkins. Um, also grow lots of vegetables. Uh, strawberries are a relatively new crop for us. We have been growing them for five years, um, all of which have been on plastic. So we like to do progressive things. We like to do intensively managed things. We do that with our apples. So plastic culture was a natural fit for us when we wanted to get into strawberries. Um, we've had a steep learning curve, as you can imagine. Um, it's definitely not an easy crop to pick up and run with, with no prior experience, but we feel pretty good now about the system that we're growing in, and it seems to work for our farm and our market. I'm Danny Van Meter, and I'm owner and operator of Van Meter Family Farm in Clarkson, Kentucky, with my wife, Trish, and her 10 children, ages 32 to uh, 10. So I don't guess there's any retirement for me. Uh, but uh, we're very blessed. Uh, experience in strawberries began in the 70s with the matted system. And then in 2005, we converted uh, to plastic culture. Uh, currently, we grow pumpkins, watermelons. Uh, and, and we started in the plug production about 10 years ago when we received some plugs with disease. And uh, we started growing for ourselves, and that's expanded to several states. 
Now we'll start our discussion with um, plastic culture strawberry. Some of our audience may not be familiar with strawberry production. And if that is the case, it might be helpful uh, for you to hear the first episode of Strawberry Chat that we had an overview of different ways you might be able to able to grow strawberries. So today um, we focused on one of the system, um, plastic culture. Plant the strawberries in late summer or early fall uh, on plastic mulch covered beds, and just like you grow tomatoes, watermelons. Um, then harvest the fruit in spring the following year and um, possibly another year. And the main benefit of using plastic culture comparing to material is uh, waste control, in my opinion. And now we are in August, uh, strawberry planting is right around the corner. First thing I was thinking is it's it's a site selection. So um, I want to ask Danny to comment on that. Uh, usually we recommend north to south orientation for the roads unless erosion is a concern. And then east to west uh, is certainly the, the choice there. Uh, we like an area possibly with uh, a windbreak on the north side. And then also considering uh, cold air drainage. Uh, if you're blocking the cold air, air from removed, being removed from an area, uh, you can have a lot of frost settling in. With plastic culture, you can expect a few weeks of frost protection because uh, the plants will wake up, so to speak, in the spring and you'll, you will have viable blooms. Uh, and if you can let that cold air be removed naturally, that can help. Uh, with some frost protection. We usually in Kentucky, we like a sandy hillside, uh, pH around 6.2. And uh, again, that orientation north to south uh, with a windbreak would be preferable. However, with deer control, uh, don't get too close to a windbreak because deer in most regions can devastate a crop just in one night. You can do everything else right. And, and without some deer protection, uh, you can be wiped out. Do you consider the market as well? Will you choose a site? Because I know you are doing UPIC, right? Uh, yes, if you have a UPIC operation, of course, uh, being next to a busy highway can, can greatly generate a lot of interest. They'll, especially if they haven't seen plastic culture before, they'll, wonder, they'll be wondering what that is green in the middle of winter. Uh, what the road covers are, what the plastic is, what are they planning in September? Uh, and then if you're by busy uh, highway, you can pick up a lot in the UPIC operation. Not so critical if, if we pick them, uh, but if uh, you have that UPIC, it, it will greatly enhance your market to be by busy highway. And we rented a, a farm uh, just next door uh, two to three years ago, about 200 acres, and our strawberries are right along the the, the busy highway and that that really increases your market. Thanks, Dennis. That's great information. Um, as Dan mentioned, this decision is really related to um, like a soil. Danny mentioned the windbreak, cold air, drainage, um, market. So a lot of things is in this um, considerations. Another very important thing we need to think about at the time of planting is to develop a plan for um, fertilization. Um, Brent, I, I know you have a lot of experience on this uh, topic. Could you comment on that, both pre-plant and throughout the season? 
Yeah, sure. And uh, it's an ever-evolving thing. We've uh, learned a lot over the last 20 years, and uh, we continue to learn today how to fine-tune this uh, uh, nutrition program. And it is much different than it was back uh, back in 2001 when we started the field uh, research. But uh, actually, when it comes to a nutrition program, as well, it ties into site selection. If you're interested in getting into plasticulture, I would highly suggest preparing that site both from a carryover crop, carryover residual herbicide issues, weed control, weed seed banks, as well as nutrition and adjusting your pH at least a year in advance. So I know that doesn't always happen as a farmer. Me and my wife have a small vegetable farm ourselves and sometimes weather and everything else messes you up. But uh, if you can plan that site at least a year in advance and the more you can, even two years in advance to try to reduce that weed seed bank and watch for any, you know, if you're growing, we grow sweet corn. So when we were doing plastic culture strawberries on our farm, we had to watch uh, the length of time between the sweet corn and when we put the plastic culture strawberries in because of uh, atrazine carryover and other uh, chemicals. So be aware of that. But if you're like uh, Calvin and have a traditional vegetable and fruit farm, probably your management of your nutrition and your soil fertility is probably already pretty good because on all fruit and vegetable crops, we're always trying to, you know, push that uh, nutrition and fertility level um, high up in, in, in any of our fruit and vegetable crops. So if you're on a traditional fruit and vegetable farm, you're probably going to be able to roll right on in the plastic culture strawberries without too much change because you should have high fertility levels in that soil. The biggest change will come when you prescription feed these crops. Uh, we prescription, you know, we drip fertigate blueberries and apples, some folks do, and, and peppers. But this uh, strawberries are even more intensively. Uh, we follow more of a prescription nutrition program almost weekly and almost beginning right after planting. So back in 2001, we just broadcast everything all over the field, pull it up into the beds, and then not even worry about drip fertigating anything until the spring. Well, we learned that those baby strawberry plants, when you plant them in, in on Labor Day or thereabouts, don't quite have the root system to go down into the bed and pull up at pre-plant fertilizer. So we have over the years and research at other universities has shown that those plants are responding well to a fall um, prescription fertility program through the drip. So um, that just helps that plant out. Because we have them little plants, it takes off for those roots to get down in and start pulling that pre-plant fertilizer up. But if we can start feeding them, about two weeks after planting or so forth, then we can help those little plants even go down after that uh, fertilizer It's into the bed. So that's probably the biggest change over the last 20 years is we do follow a, uh, a fall uh, fertigation program, just lightly, not a big one, but just enough to help those little plants get established. And we are seeing some pretty good yield responses. Every farm's gonna be different. So again, that pre-planting, uh, a year in advance, at least get your soil test taken, have it checked, pay the extra to have the minors as well as the major nutrients tested for. And again, if you're on a traditional vegetable farm, our pH is going to be about the same for plastic culture strawberries as you would for tomatoes or melons or pumpkins, but it's my field corn growers and my grain crop farmers that want to put a, you know, the boy came back to the farm or the daughter came back to the farm and they want to diversify to stay on the grain farm. So they want to put out a couple acres of uh, plastic culture strawberry. 
grain farmers traditionally don't have as high fertility levels as we have on traditional fruit and vegetable farms. So those farmers really need to get that soil tested, really need to manage their minor nutrients, need to manage those major, major nutrients. And boy, we really have to teach those farmers that aren't used to fertigation how important a fertigation program is. And, you know, we're shooting for, and again, it varies every year. Weather has some to do with some years, we may be just down to 120 total pounds of nitrogen for the season. Some years we may up to, may, may be up to 200 pounds of actual nitrogen per acre. Um, and it just varies all between. I have really relied on since the very beginning days. Um, they look a lot different, but I don't know if you can see this as a Cardi pen. And I really like to have these quick nitrate tests, um, petio sap analysis, so we can go to the field and pull some leaf samples, squeeze the sap onto this little mirror and get a quick nitrate reading. And then you do it throughout the field, just like you would a soil test, but I can adjust then my nitrate levels. Now we can do this for other nutrients as well, but if you just follow um, your results from your, periodic weekly testing. I like to see this done at least a week. Um, and then you can change up that fertigation program on nitrogen because probably that's where our farmers fall short, um, especially the new folks getting into plastic culture strawberry is these things eat. These things just eat and eat and eat nitrogen. You would never think, you know, back when grandpa and great grandpa grew matted rose strawberries, they wouldn't put nitrogen down in the spring because they said it made soft fruit. We actually didn't use much nitrogen on matted row strawberries. The big difference, matted row to plastic culture is these things will eat up any nitrogen you can put on them, but you got to manage it. Too much nitrogen will hurt you. Too little nitrogen will hurt you. The only way you can do it is not that you have to use an instrument like a Cardi pen or back in the old days as a square thing looked like a credit card, a Cardi meter. Um, I think these are called P or uh, nitrate pens now. Um, you can at least maybe send some samples to your soil testing lab, um, petio samples on a weekly basis because those most soil testing labs will also analyze petios for the nutrient content, especially nitrate that's in those leaves. And you can change it up. The trouble with using a lab is you collect the samples today, you drop them off or put them in the mail. You got a day or two lag time there. Then you get your results back. You could be looking at three or four days with a quick test. As long as a farmer can get it part of their uh, uh, management strategy, you can have your results in three or four minutes and be changing, adjusting your nitrogen program through your fertigation that quick. And believe me, those three to four minutes compared to three or four days really can make you a lot of money. And, you know, these are, they're expensive today. I don't know what they are now. $300. If you send a sample to the lab and then pay the postage, you know, there you're looking at 20 bucks a pop. And if you do that over a six week season or a five week season, uh, two weeks in the fall and, a, you know, four or five weeks in the spring, you could pay for one of these. But one of my farmers, when I was with OSU, I convinced him to buy one. Okay. He bought the, he bought the Cardi meter. Uh, it laid in his desk drawer for 10 years. He never used it. <laughs> so if you do buy the Cardi meter, 
please utilize it. Don't let it lay in the desk drawer because it's not going to do you any good. Now he uses it. He said, Brad, I wish I would have listened to you back 10 years ago because he is making lots of money now, not only using these instruments on his strawberries, but he's using it on his cantaloupe, his watermelon, his tomatoes, um, lots of crap. So that's the key, you know, put down according to your soil test results. Um, we're probably looking at anywhere from 120 to 200 to, uh, total pounds of nitrogen of the acre for the life of that plant, depending on the season, depending on the growth, da, 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 um, all based on test results. And watch your minor nutrients. Get your soil tested for the minors. And if you need, if your soil type or you're lacking in some minors like zinc or boron or, or, uh, or molly or any of the others, you know, we, there are products out there that you can fertigate. That's what's cool that we can now, you know, we have fertigation. If I would have had to start this in 2001 in Ohio without fertigation, we wouldn't have done it. This crop relies on fertigation to be successful. So, yeah, in a nutshell, it yeah. varies by farm, but that's uh, those would be my pointers to be successful. But you have to do it. It has to be part of your management strategy. Thanks, Brad. Hey. I, Brad, if farmers use that, what is the numbers they should looking for to meet that target? And uh, is that depends yeah, on I, by I'm, the season? I'm utilizing the, and I think North Carolina, I don't know, Danny, I can't remember. North Carolina has a chart that when Barkley Pulling was there, he developed. So that was the one that we continue to use. Just like on vegetables, we use George Hockmus, uh standards. You know, even though they're Florida standards, a tomato plant in Florida is about the same uh, requirements in terms of growth in Ohio, but uh, yes. we have not yes. fine-tuned it for Ohio. I never had a chance to do that, but uh, is, is there anything better, Danny, now today? Well, may, I'll comment there. The the general recommendation is 60 units of nitrogen pre-plant. If you go over that, you'll have a lot of runner development, and I've seen that even with 10 units over that, you'll get a, a, an enormous number of runners in the fall, which you don't want, want but uh, sometimes uh, the weather controls that. Now, once you get in, into production, it's an actual one pound of nitrogen per day or seven pounds per week for certain varieties. Now, like with Ruby June, we've been able to almost double up on that. And that's great about Ruby June. You can size them without compromising flavor. And they, like you said, Brad, they eat the nitrogen up. And sometimes I can go double of the recommended rate. And if you have a nitrogen uh, test or you can test that nitrogen levels like you have and we send we can send to a local lab and have them the next day uh, but I've already sent you a text to get information on ordering that particular meter I want one uh, because it will help and I'll refer it to the other growers but that 60 pounds of nitrogen pre-plant with chicken litter at four tons to the acre uh, I've been having good success with it because it's slow release on nitrogen uh, and we either do that or do the 60, 120, 120, or 60, 180, 180, depending on soil fertility, but soil tests would tell you that. And then boron, uh, we're seeing a lot of deficiencies and a lot of sulfur deficiencies in our region, uh, getting those micronutrients tested. Uh, boron will cause deformed berries in the spring if you're not careful deficiency in it. And sometimes we are actually adding boron about every two to three weeks through through fertigation to make sure we maintain a good boron level. Thanks, Danny, for and that. We will uh, move on to next topic. I want to discuss a little bit about the shape of the beds. We like them to look like Florida, but uh, that's not practical. But Brad's laughing because Florida, you have sand and you have 
12 inch high beds with a pronounced crown in the middle. And they look like cookie cutter uh, beds. But in Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Indiana, uh, where you have clay, you have rocks, you have hillsides, getting that bed preferably at least six inches. I prefer eight to 10 uh, in height. And you have to do that by pre-bedding. I'll back up a little bit. If you don't go down in the soil, you can't come up. So I use a rototiller right before the bed making process. Like Brad said, those weed seeds, if you'll prepare your ground well in advance and just disc the ground, let the weeds come up, disc them down, let them come up, disc them down, you'll control a lot of weeds like that. And then right before bedding, uh, we like to run that, that tractor tiller uh, right in advance of the better. If you do it too much in advance and you get a lot of rain and you have that soil worked up fine, you'll make it as hard as concrete. So you'll actually till all the, the air out of it and you'll have a mess. So I just like to till it right in front of the bed making. I like to go down eight to 10, 12 inches if I can. And I usually remove the guards or the glides off the tiller to do that, lengthening the third arm, which will give you more depth. I worked with it for years, shortening the third arm. You would think it would go deeper, but by lengthening the third arm or the top arm, you'll get a longer stroke and you'll go down. And we're piling up the dirt. Again, go down. Uh, I usually stick a tool in it, eight to 10 inches. And then if you can pre-bed, filling the center of the bed before you actually put the plastic down, you'll have much better luck. I run my better two different directions before I put the plastic down. I'll run it to pull the soil in initially. The second pull will firm it up and you'll have a, a good fill in the middle. And the third pass, uh, I'll put the plastic on knowing that that bed is full and contact with that soil with the plastic is crucial and you won't have flopping of the plastic. You'll have good drainage. The more pronounced crown you can get, the better. But I haven't had to too much luck with a pronounced crown. The bedding equipment that you use uh, can greatly affect that. Kinko, uh, Rainflow, Riddick, and there's a gentleman in Florida that actually sells a uh, custom-built uh, machine with the most pronounced beds that I've seen, uh, And uh, but those are very expensive, man. They look almost like a housetop where that center of that bed is, is crowned, and that allows drainage off of the, the berries. I love to see it. I use a, originally I used a 34 inch bed top for plenty of room. I went to a 32, but the industry standards usually about 28 inches across the bed. Uh, you're wanting the edges of your plastic to form a J as you're pulling the plastic. That way that dirt continuously uh, will tighten that plastic. If you wad that plastic on the edge, then you can get a lot of, a lot of loose plastic. And there's some other points there, but Again, fill that center, uh, make sure your plastic is tight, make sure your edges are covered. Now with three passes on the bedding equipment, unless you have a lot of dirt, you're gonna struggle for dirt to cover your edges. And there's nothing more frustrating than getting out there in high wind and seeing all that work disappear with wind, especially if you're doing it in dry conditions and you don't get a settling rain uh, to settle them down in the next, uh, the first few days after plastic, after laying the plastic. Thanks to share those details then for our 
audience, the if you are not very familiar with strawberry, the reason we discuss about the bed because the strawberry do have shallow root, and uh, the bed is I would say is the it's even more important if for the folks who deal with a heavier soils, you really want to build because of the shallow root of these plants. Next thing I, I want to discuss is about the color of the plastic, um, black versus white. And I want to ask Kevin to comment on this because he has used the both in the past and has his own opinions. Also, I, I know Kevin studied with using the typical um, bed to like vegetable farmers use make lower beds and uh, now he invested to buy a different plastic layer to build taller beds so maybe Kevin can also comment on the shape of the beds as well is that okay Kevin? Yep so the first two years that we are growing strawberries we use our existing vegetable plastic culture equipment so we were basically making a flat bed we went away from that very quickly. And I'm sorry, we only did that for the first year. Um, so going into our second year, we invested in a rain flow bed shaper. Um, we've since transitioned all of our plastic culture, including vegetables over to using beds made by that machine. Um, I agree with pretty much everything Danny said. It's worth taking your time to get the bed made right. Um, otherwise you're gonna be fighting it forever. We've been able to get away from using a rototiller past two years. Um, we have a five shank Glencoe soil saver, which is just a disc chisel. And we put a Rimlinger rolling basket on the back of it. And if we're patient and wait for the soil to be the right level of moisture, not too wet, not too dry, we can run that, that disc chisel through and then come right through with the better. And, and we get really good results and we don't end up with quite as much compaction between the beds that we did with the rototiller. Um, there are still certain situations where the rototiller is about the only thing that's going to get the job done. Um, and then as far as plastic goes, so for two years, uh, we were planting on black plastic um, and we had a lot of difficulties in the spring during our harvest period with the plastic getting too hot, um, especially on varieties that set fruit more out towards the shoulder of the bed. Um, and I toured a couple other farms, uh, Garwood Orchard up in Laporte, Indiana was one of them, and they had all of their strawberries on white plastic um, for the same reasons, too much fruit getting burned and damaged. So we have since moved over to white on black uh, and we love it. I mean, the fruit quality is great. We don't have issues with the fruit getting soft where it's touching the plastic. Um, and, and we don't have any issues with plant size. I mean, our plants are, are large and healthy. Um, we do try to get plugs in the ground. We're going to be planting our plugs next week. So we do try to go a little bit earlier um, to try to capture some more GDUs. Uh, whereas if we were using black, you know, we might go closer to Labor Day. Um, but we, we like it and we've started using the white plastic on more crops as well, because it seems like anymore we're, we're just battling heat, uh, 90 degrees on Memorial day weekends, not uncommon for us. And that's when we're starting to pick strawberries and we're primarily you pick. So if we can, you know, compared to black, I think the fruit can hold for maybe another day. Um, and, and when you're a U-Pick operation, that's a big deal because you're not going out and clean picking everything every day like if you're, if you're picking for a wholesale market. 
plaques and uh, bare root. Probably at the beginning, you are using bare root, if I um, remember right. So could you share your experience with um, the two different types of planting materials? Yep. So we started out um, doing all bare root. Um, we were doing bare root as recently as last year. So I think for about two or three years, we were doing about 50% each. Um, I was always hesitant with plugs because, uh, like I said earlier, we're, we're picking apples now. Um, and apples are our main crop. And the concept of trying to deal with making beds and, and putting plants in the ground while we're picking apples uh, was pretty frightening to me, um, especially for our area, the traditional plug planting window would be later this month around Labor Day weekend. And that's when we're picking Honeycrisp. Um, and Honeycrisp harvest is very demanding in this part of the country, um, also due to heat and that apple's propensity to drop. So for that reason, we wanted to do bare root plants, but as our acreage expanded, um, we got some experience with plugs. Uh, I actually bought them from Danny the first year we did plugs. Um, we just were like, you know, it was a game changer. It was so much easier, so much faster. Um, the biggest thing for us was that, you know, you have such a high success rate with your plugs. You almost have no plant mortality. There's no gaps, no empty spaces. Um, whereas with bare root plants, you know, you might have a lot of issues. Uh, you could have issues with plant material. Um, for us, it was, we were started having issues. We were bringing new guys onto our crew. We had H2A guys that we were out there, you know, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, trying to get these plugs into the ground. Cause we're busy with other things or not plugs, trying to get bare root plants into the ground. And a lot of them didn't get planted properties properly. So we had J root issues and things like that. And then you're coming back two weeks later and you can't find more plant material. So that was, you know, last year we had a big struggle with that. We went and got our plugs in the ground, had no issues at all. So we decided that this year we're going 100% plugs. Um, it's obviously a lot more capital intensive. You're spending more money for the plant material up front, especially with deposits and things like that. Um, and if you don't have the equipment to do that, that's going to be another investment. But as far as getting your stand done right the first time, um, I think plugs are absolutely the way to go. But you got to have the equipment and you got to have the flexibility to get it done when they arrive. Um, that's the other, if there's a negative, the plugs, when they show up, they got to go in the field, you know, bare root plants, you can throw them in the cooler for, you know, we had stuff in the cooler for two weeks and it would plant it out and still be okay. So um, there's pros and cons to both, but for us, um, we just, we're, we have too, we do too much and we don't have enough time to do something twice. So if we can do plugs, we get it done right the first time and we don't have to worry about it. And that's, that's why we made that switch. That's great. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, that's about planting materials. Next thing I want to discuss is um, a practice of planting cover crop between rows for weeds control. Um, Danny, I, I know you have this experience. You have been successful in, in doing this. So could you tell us more about it? Uh, sure. Our choice is annual rye. Uh, the usual recommendation is 25 pounds to the acre. However, I love it thick, so I'll usually spread about 50 pounds to the acre immediately after you lay the plastic. Uh, you want to definitely blow the plastic off or make sure every, every seed is off of the plastic uh, before you poke your holes with your uh, water wheel planter or just with a hole punch. Or for smaller growers, you can do that by hand. Um, we started with 1,100 plants back in 05, and we used the PVC pipe, one-inch pipe, 
uh, at the right distance. Uh, we, we usually recommend 12 to 15 inch in row spacing. But if, unless you remove all the seed off of that plastic, you're going to plant rye around your plugs. And also be careful when you put your water wheel planter or your hole punch down on the ends where you have actually broadcast rye. Uh, if you pick up rye on that water wheel or that hole punch, you will distribute it all the way through your field. Now, you can control the rye with post or select. That's no problem. Uh, but no one likes to go over the field and do that in the fall because you want that rye to germinate quickly. Uh, if you can get a good rain after laying your plastic and then sowing your rye, then you have a nice, nice seabed of rye right in those middles. And if you really want to get particular, when we started, our middles look just like our yard in our front of our house. Uh, you can mow it. It'll come back. You can weed eat it. Be careful with the edge of your plastic. And you can make a showcase uh, strawberry patch, and that's very attractive for you pick. Now, managing in the spring, if it gets too aggressive and you have a lot of nitrogen uh, in, your, in your soil, then that, that annual rye is going to take off. Now, we have used a, a walk-behind mower. Uh, we modified it to from 42 inches down to about 24 inches. A walk-behind sickle mower, some of the DR mowers uh, can take it down in the fall, or you can spray a half rate of poster select and sort of stun it. Now, typically, I don't have a problem with rye getting too aggressive in the spring. Uh, if it starts falling over on the edges of your plants, you can get some yellowing, you can get light limitations. Uh, we have walked the edges of the bed down. My children will tell you they're, they're sore the next day they can't move. Uh, just by taking one step and walking the rye down to keep it from falling on the plants. However, most growers, the larger growers, will spray it with poster select very early in the spring because of that concern. What I went to, and Brad may have a different opinion, and you, Calvin, also, uh, I've seen there are benefits in letting the rye go ahead and get even possibly knee to waist high uh, before I spray it down. And this is the reason. Uh, if the row covers, which is what is what the majority of my growers, the growers I work with, use for frost control now, if you get a heavy frost and that row cover is in contact with that open bloom, it can burn the bloom. And we recommend 1.25 ounce uh, with that allows around 70% light penetration. Now they have neutral uh, uh, colors now uh, that I'm really excited about. We're going to test that this year. But if that bloom touches that, uh, row cover and it's covered with frost, you'll get a black eye. Uh, and with early, with plastic culture production, you're going to be, you know, two to three weeks before of frost before you actually uh, get past the frost free date. And then that rye will help hold that cover off and create uh, an area of heat actually for that plant. So that's how I usually let it get as tall as possible without it falling over on the plant. And then either mow that multiple times adding organic matter to the middles uh, works very well for us and then possibly spray it within the window of the pre-harvest interval or the PHI and if that rye will it's a slow kill with poster select using trying to crop oil in cooler temperatures non-ionic surfactant after temperatures get a little higher uh, it'll be a slow kill on that rye and then you've actually grown your own straw for the middles, keeping the berries very clean 
providing a great walking area for your pickers. And even if you don't mow at the first few pickings, the, the, the pickers will actually mat it or lay it down. Uh, and then you have, have rye. And then even in the summer, uh, it, it'll continue. If you have moisture and low temperatures, it'll come back again. That's the reason I like annual rye. And we even, with annual rye, I'll just fill this in on pumpkins, we're top dressing with nitrogen mixed with annual rye before the pumpkins start to runner. Uh, we can still get, with some moisture, we can get germination. The pumpkins cover the ground. And then October 31st, uh, we bush hog uh, the pumpkins and we already have our cover crop sunk. Thanks, Danny, for sharing this. And our next topic I want to discuss is about winter protection. I, I probably want to ask Brand because we are a little bit nosing. Uh, I think you did some research on, on winter protection, Brand, during your all your years to your strawberry research. Uh, can you share with us what, what you learned over the years? Do we need to worry about too cold to get damage on the crops? <laughs> oh, we sure do. Danny and I have both been through a lot of those winters, but uh, that is the risk you're taking. Like Danny said, you go out there in the middle of January and you got a green field. The difference between matted row and even the summer planted plastic culture, um, when we plant them in the fall, they remain green as grass and they're growing all winter long. They, they never really truly go dormant. I think we call it a semi-dormant stage, but they will always remain with a nice green leaf tissue underneath there. So in order to North Carolina, Southern states, it was no problem. So when we brought this to the Midwest and started trying to adopt it for our Midwestern conditions, uh, that was the biggest real change was that winter protection. So Back in 2001, we had all kinds of weird things out there. We had no protection. We had straw because the matted row growers were still thought they could put straw on. Uh, we had all different ounces of, of row cover. We had, it's come a long way since 2001, but we had these little low tunnels out there that blew all over the place. Much better uh, low tunnels today. But um, for what we're talking about with the plastic culture field production, we've pretty well got that fine tune. Like Danny said, we're looking at about an inch and a quarter um, or one and, a, one and a quarter ounce per square yard is the weight. Um, I always tell my farmers, if you're going to replace your row cover, throw the old in the barn, even if it's got a bunch of holes in it, because how, I can't remember all the years now, Dan, Dan, that we've had a minus 20 uh, polar vortex event. Um, I'm sure Calvin can recall a few of those too. But if you do have a polar vortex event, um, just from experience, we have seen if you throw on even an old beat up uh, row cover on top of that other one, you can actually save a fair percentage of that crop compared to just letting it go with your standard ounce and a quarter because a polar vortex event especially if it comes later in the year after these uh, plants start breaking dormancy uh, can really hurt us on plastic culture strawberries. Um, back in the old days in 2001, we were just going on a calendar basis when to apply row covers. Uh, calendar basis, Halloween, put them on. April 1st, pull them off. Well, like Danny was talking about light transmission through the uh, row covers, we were seeing that maybe that Halloween, uh, we were putting it on too early because these plants put on 85% of their growth. And even maybe for you guys that don't know about strawberries, we pretty well have that crop 
determined by December, January 1st. We can cut that crown open, put it under a microscope and count how many flower buds that we have initiated because all that flower bud initiation is done in the fall. So when we were throwing on the row covers on Halloween, we were probably knocking out two months of grow time or reducing that growth rate in those two months because we reduced that light from 100% to 70% or whatever row, row cover weight you were using. So now we, and Danny has this more fine tuned than me, but to make it simple for my growers, I tell them, especially folks just getting into this, if you get into a week of 50 degree average temperature between your high and your low, start thinking about putting your row covers on in the fall. And when you hit that 50 degree average temperature in the spring, that's about when you start pulling them off. Now in the spring, you'll wanna leave them lay because you're gonna be putting them on for frost protection and freeze protection. Um, so we no longer really use that calendar basis. Depending on your region, depending on your farm, after you've been at it a while, you probably know approximately when you're going to put them on. At our research farm at Piketon, now it's always the uh, right around the week of Christmas. Now we're Southern Ohio. My Northern Ohio growers north of 70, they'll be putting on row covers the first week of uh, December and the November, depending on when the temperatures change. But you see how far now we've pushed that uh, from the old calendar basis of 2001 of, of October 31st to now we're getting um, December 1st, December 15th, December 20th. Um, and that's just allowing those plants to grow more. And we're seeing a lot more uh, flower bud initiation, a lot more growth on those plants with that management of the row covers. But um, you will need row covers. You're not going to use straw just because like Danny said, they're green as grass all winter. So you put straw on top of a growing plant, you're going to kill it and suffocate it. So you cannot use straw to cover those plants. Under a cold polar vortex event, maybe, but how are you going to keep it on the row covers? And then you got to get it off so fast. Um, so basically we're using row covers. Now a lot of my strawberry growers that traditionally use frost overhead sprinklers for frost control, now with the row covers, they don't use the uh, sprinkler irrigation for frost control near as much uh, because they're used to the row cover management. So um, now some of my growers have kept it because like the polar vortex events, you put on two, row, two layers of row cover, especially if you're starting to see bloom already, then you can encase that row cover with some ice with overhead uh, irrigation. You're going to protect that crop under extreme polar vortex events a lot, lot better if you have all three, two layers of row cover and an ice uh, encase it in ice. But um, at least uh, row covers are, are really good for you got to have them to get them plants through the winter. And you got to manage them, though, because you can hurt yourself. But Danny's got a lot of experience with row covers, too. You may want to share. I'll just add this. We tested single row covers, double row covers, and covers with overhead protection. And by far, the single cover with overhead was the best protection because you're encasing that or the water releases heat. Ambient heat effusion is what it's called. As long as you continually freeze the water, you'll release the heat. Uh, the natural color that I mentioned, it's brand new. Uh, that's not going to reflect as much light. And it'll also let your beds heat up a lot more. So if you can apply the row covers before, uh, maybe, you know, during the early morning hours and a full sun day, you'll heat up the temperatures in the soil and that will generate heat being released during the night. 
Uh, we, we, through a grant, we were able to get a weather station uh, a year ago, and I tested some different frost events, and there's a lot of difference between roll cover manufacturers. Uh, some four to six degrees difference, and that's critical. Uh, that bloom can't reach, uh, if the bloom goes under 30 degrees of the black eye and certain conditions, uh, uh, they can be damaged and like those polar uh, vortexes. I think we experienced one in Lexington one time, didn't we, Brad? Uh, where it was down around zero in January. I still remember that. And we, Brad gave a session there. It was a great example. But those crowns damaged uh, what I like to do, and Brad, exactly spot on. Uh, if the temperature's has been warmer and it's falling to anything below 15 degrees, I like to put it on it. Uh, that way it's not a shock to that plant, but leaving the row covers off and letting them harden off, uh, get acclimated to the cold winters. That's why Brad has found uh, sometime in December, uh, then that's the time to apply them. Row covers are a must uh, for almost any strawberry grower. If, and one thing about overhead, you have to stay up all night. <laughs> Uh, with and I've had pictures of the moon shining off that ice, uh, but with row covers, you can usually put them on and go to bed, even though your children are going to say, "No, we don't need to put it on tonight." Uh, if you give in to that and you get a frost, uh, you can lose fifteen to twenty percent of your crop with those king blooms or those early blooms. That's your best berry. So I always, uh, I usually override them, but the times I haven't and I've got burnt by frost, uh, that that's always in the back of my mind putting on those row covers too, because pulling on wet row covers is not fun. And pulling on row covers in 30 mile an hour winds is not fun. So if you can sort of try to watch the weather in advance and get those covers down, uh, it's uh, the children might like to go out and do it a little bit better if they don't have to pull heavy weighted uh, <laughs> so, so row covers. <laughs> At least my boys were that way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let me move to the next topic. Um, Danny, I, I know you have some interesting crop rotation um, plans. Can you share of that? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, we started several years ago because of uh, the dislike of pulling plastic, trying to get multiple crops through, through the same plastic. Once you pull the plastic in the fall, uh, then we've tried to tweak it to where we can actually get four cash crops and two cover crops in a three-year rotation uh, for our plastic culture. Uh, in doing that, you eliminate the need to remove it. Uh, we don't like to carry over berries to that second year unless you get a late planting. Uh, we like to go with something else. So with quad cropping, as we call it, uh, and let me back up a little bit. The reason we I've got the pictures of my daughter-in-laws, and I, I looked at this earlier with, uh, with Brad. My two daughters, uh, are sis daughter-in-laws are sisters, and they married my brother, two of my boys. Uh, and both of those uh, young ladies come from Indiana, uh, and I think that's Calvin's home state. But my fondest memory of them was pulling plastic the first time they came to our farm. And if you've ever pulled a lot of plastic and picked that up by hand, you know what a dirty job that is. So... I started trying to figure out ways of getting multiple crops. So after strawberries are finished, usually in mid-June, you'll burn that down, burn the plants down, and then mow them close. I use a flail mower to mow them, and then poke new holes in the plastic, and then we usually go with seedless watermelons. Now, to do this, again, a 1.25 mil plastic embossed, I use 15 mil drip, 
uh, which is heavier duty. We started with eight mil and you can't get two crops out of eight hardly ever without a lot of splices. Uh, but with the 15 mil, you can get multiple crops. So watermelons, like Brad said earlier, with high fertility, you have the soil cranked up for those strawberries. You have residual nitrogen. Usually once you transplant seedless watermelons, you don't have to add any fertility until after, after bloom stage. And then you may try to tweak it at that point. Easily you can have large 30, 35 pound seedless watermelons by Labor Day. So you've actually added another cash crop uh, to your plastic culture in the same year. So we took it, we did that and we took it a step further. Well, why pull it up then and put a cover crop if you can get another crop or two out of it? So, and this is against traditional wisdom of removing all the dead plant material, but if you allow those watermelon vines to remain on that plastic and hold that plastic down, uh, and again, you don't wanna pull your strawberry plants, you create loose plastic. You're mowing them off, you're punching new holes, and then the watermelon vines will hold that plastic down during the winter. And then you can direct seed or what we like to do is transplant sweet corn. So the same 50 cell trays that we use for strawberry plants, uh, the experts say uh, 120 to 200 count. We like two, two seed uh, per 50 cell count uh, in those trays. And if you put two seed corn there and you're putting a, a a sweet corn transplant in between every strawberry plant poking new holes, then you're gonna have the density where strawberries are 12,000 plants per acre on 15 inch spacing. You have 24,000 uh, count of sweet corn and you transplant it, then you can possibly in our area, we can have sweet corn by Father's Day. So that's the third crop, usually by mid-June, uh, 1st of July, you're ready for your fourth crop. If you mow your sweet corn down and you have all the stalk residue on top of that plastic to keep it from breaking down. Now don't use uh, biodegradable plastic by any means, uh, but those stalks will actually protect the plastic for your fourth crop, which would be direct seed pumpkins or transplanted pumpkins, which is very popular in my area right now. Uh, if you have those plants ready by the 1st of July in our area in Kentucky, then you can have a very good pumpkin crop, your fourth crop, and when pumpkins are finished, the end of October, pull your plastic. Now it's going to be full of holes because every time you plant a plant, uh, you're poking a new hole. You're never pulling up the plant. That loosens the plastic. That plant residue will help hold that plastic down. Uh, pull the plastic up in October. And if you still have enough warmth in your area to, to uh, germinate a cover crop like an annual, uh, like a cereal rye, uh, you can plant that, and then the next spring, uh, before you go back to strawberries, we like to use a caliente, or, or actually a real hot mustard mixed with arugula, which is a nematode control. Uh, it'll control weeds and diseases. You flail it right before you work it into the soil. It breaks down really quick, and then you're ready to go back with your strawberries. So in summary, uh, in a three-year year period, you have four cash crops and two cover crops, and then back to strawberries. Now, again, you're doing two. You, you, the, the types of crops that you do, we generally don't recommend two cucurbits that close together, but I haven't found any issues in my area with watermelons in the fall and then pumpkins following sweet corn. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Danny. Uh, mm, 
to share this very interesting crop rotation plans. Um, Dan is in central Kentucky, and I know many of our listeners are probably north of where Dan is. Um, but I think this um, double cropping idea Dan is exploring in those three years rotation plan, it's it's very valuable for Indiana growers, even where a little bit of north of where um, Dan is. Okay, um, we're actually running out of time. Um, I want to let the um, folks who participate live, uh, if you have questions, please leave it in the chat box. Um, and if we cannot cover it within the hour, at least I know what your questions are and I can try to um, answer it or ask mm -hmm. our guests later if we have to end our program within a year. And while or while waiting for um, questions coming, I want to discuss another thing. I really are interested. It's about uh, different cultivars. And uh, um, I know um, we all have our opinions of what cultivars are working in our system. So I want to hear what our guests say. Um, maybe first I want to ask Kevin, you you have been experiencing trying different cultivars for a few years. What, what's your opinion? And I know you grow strawberry for two years, so probably the cultivars working for uh, one year is not necessarily once good for two years. So I want to hear what, what you experience on the cultivars. Yeah, that's I think the biggest disclaimer for me is is we're in a two year system um, and we've seen a big difference in in the varieties in terms of how they come back in that second year. Um, so we, the two varieties that we really have found fit us are Galetta and Yambu, which are both early varieties, but being you pick, um, and the, those of you that do you pick crops, you'll know that when you start, when you open your season, that's when the demand is the highest. So we have been shifting our strawberry production to focus more on earlier varieties, because as we get into the second and third week of June, um, for us, the demand just isn't what it is early, especially around Memorial Day. So we like Galetta and Yambu. Um, Mid-season, we are starting to use a lot of Dar Select. Um, we've grown Cabot for four years. We're going away from Cabot because those plants uh, don't come back the second year as well. We have much higher plant mortality with them. They seem to get very sensitive to summer droughts. Um, so that's a difficulty when you're carrying strawberries over, you finish your harvest, you're ready to stop thinking and looking at strawberries, um, and then you start getting dry in our area, July and August is typically um, you know, pretty dry and hot. Uh, you have to make sure that those strawberries get enough water and that you don't forget about them. It's an easy thing to do. Um, we've grown Chandler as well. Chandler is awesome in the first year. I mean, maybe if I was doing an annual system, I would grow a lot of Chandler because um, that first year they're great. The second year, not so much. Um, whereas with Galetta, you get really, really consistent crop both years. Thanks, Kevin. Um, that's um, Kevin have two year systems. So um, the artists he recommend, I want to remind our audience. Then I want to ask Daniel. I, I know Daniel probably many just growing one year so what, what's your experience and then you have this um, plug business so i'm sure you grow strawberries you also talk with uh, many different <laughs> strawberry growers so i want to hear your opinion on cultivars with plastic culture uh there are certain varieties that are possibly recommended in a one-year system uh if you planted late some growers will carry those over but I exclusively get my tips from Prince Edward Island and there's only a certain number of varieties that they offer. 
our number one seller right now is a new variety. Like, like Calvin said, Chandler's been the mainstay since the 80s. Uh, great flavor, high yield. Uh, we try to, with most of the growers we work with, try to get them to produce somewhere between a pound and a pound and a quarter, which is about a quart per plant. And most of the, these varieties will do it. I'll mention them in the order of flavor. Uh, Ruby June, Chandler, and Sweet Charlie at the to- are the top of the flavor list. Uh, their shelf life uh, are the shelf life of those three varieties would not be as good as the other three that I'm mentioning, uh, which would be Camino Real, Merced, and Camarosa. Uh, those are the six varieties that we handle for plastic culture. There's others like Calvin mentioned. There's a lot of great, great varieties out there that may fit uh, your particular region and your customers. Usually, uh, you want to provide what your customers like. So the Ruby June has a little bit more of a, an increased shelf life. Uh, it's not a. Uh, it doesn't flush like the Chandler. Is the reason it, it's becoming so popular uh, for Chandler about that third week they flush and they can be overwhelming. With Ruby June, it's more consistent. Ruby June will yield about 80, 80% of what Chandler will overall, but our growers are able to get that core per plant because most of the berries with Ruby June are number one. With Chandler, if you have too many crowns and crown development, we didn't get there today, but that's a great discussion. And Brad mentioned growth in the fall. A yield is directly proportionate to floral development and number of crowns produced. So with, uh, with, Chandler, if you get eight to 10 crowns, branch crowns, you're going to have a lot of small berries. So that planting date is also crucial uh, for a maximum production. But those are the six varieties that we handle. Uh, again, num- an order of pop- popularity, uh, Ruby June's number one now, Chandler, uh, Sweet Charlie and Camarosa, and then Merced and Camino Rea. We are coming to one o'clock now. This will be the end of today's and strawberry chat again i want to thank all our guests it's so nice of you to willing to share it with all our audience thank you so much for participating in this program as miranda put on the chat box our next strawberry chat will be september 7 we'll see you next month